Wow, that's tremendous singing. Maybe today, maybe today our Lord will come for us and we will see him. That will be a glorious, glorious day. As we gather and celebrate the uh, the Lord every Lord's Day, it's uh, in anticipation of that time when we will see him. He'll come in the clouds and deliver us from this world. Now, before the children are dismissed, uh, I want them to help us answer a question corporately here today. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to respond. Is God good? Yes. Okay, good job, children. You can be dismissed to Children's Church. Uh, At this time, we dismiss children to Children's Church, uh, ages K4 through 3rd grade. You can go through the back doors of the auditorium or the overflow uh, chapel into the Welcome Center area where a person will, a junior church worker, will walk you over to the Children's Ministry building. And uh, parents, uh, we invite you, if you want to check it out, you can go over there and check it out and then come back and... Uh, Join us in here uh, after that, and remember to pick up your children uh, after church or after our Bible studies uh, at noon today. Um, So, uh, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. Our God is good. He's always good. Always good to us. It's been uh, great so far to be able to worship together and sing praises to uh, our God, His goodness, who sent His Son, Jesus to die for us. Sometimes that simple message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, him, you know, him coming as a little baby and then uh, him living and then eventually dying on a cross and, and then raising again from the dead or, or arising again from the dead is a simple message that we think of only in the New Testament. Sometimes we don't think of the way God was working thousands of years before to secure the line of people who would Uh, produce uh, the child Jesus one day. Uh, Of course, we know Jesus was God and man. In the human part of this, there was a line of people that God would use and protect and preserve uh, so that one day Jesus would come to offer salvation for us. And we're going to begin looking at that uh, together today in Genesis chapter 21. Last week, we started a new section of Genesis where Moses deals with threats and fulfillments of God's promises to Abraham. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, there are three promises that God makes to Abraham. He promises him land, seed, and blessing. That should be like indelibly grained on your conscience. Land, seed, and blessing in Genesis chapter 12. Then in Genesis chapters 20 and 21, the the chapters we're looking at this week and last... Moses describes the fulfillment of God's promise of a seed and uh, threats to the promises of seed and land. Last week, if you were here, I pointed out that in Genesis 20 and 21, Moses uses brackets at the end of the text to hold these two chapters together. The way he brackets them is by mentioning a king, King Abimelech, who was the king of Gerar uh, of the Philistine people. And so that mention of Abimelech at the beginning of Genesis 20 and at the end of Genesis 21 holds the whole thing together. And, um, And so last week we saw in Genesis 20, Abimelech, King Abimelech, this pagan king, marries Sarah the wife of Abraham, because Abraham didn't tell the whole truth. 
He said, she is my sister. And of course, this is not a new sin for Abraham. By the way, if you missed last week, but you've been here before, you say, wait, was that a review sermon? No, this is the second time at least that he commits the same sin. But here, King Abimelech marries her and intends to consummate the marriage, but God wouldn't let that happen. God wouldn't let Abimelech so much as touch her because his promise was that that, that Abraham and Sarah would have a boy within the year. And if there's a marriage and a consummation of that new marriage between King Abimelech and Sarah, that would threaten the promise of the seed. And so, if you remember what God does, he confronts Abimelech in a night dream, a nightmare. He starts the dream by saying, you are a dead man. The worst of all nightmares uh, when the creator God says that to you. You are a dead man, Abimelech. And, and then Abimelech defends himself. He says, I didn't know anything about this. And so God decides to show mercy. And he tells Abimelech that what he needs to do is he needs to go to the liar, I mean the prophet of God, Abraham, and ask Abraham to pray for him, to pray that God would open the wombs of all of the women in his city and in his kingdom. So he does that, and God responds by opening up all the wombs of Abimelech's, in, in Abimelech's kingdom, and he preserves the integrity and honor of Sarah. Well, today in Genesis chapter 21, I want to look at the first part of the chapter. We're going to look at verses 1 through 21. In this chapter, we're going to move from celebration to conflict. So I've got two points this morning. Simple outline, short sermon, right? Not always uh, the case, but I think maybe today. We'll see. The text moves from celebration to conflict. It starts with the euphoria of a newborn son but it continues to the dismissal of another son. If you have the handout and you're taking notes, you'll see a quote I put in the handout there um, where Victor Hamilton, a commentator on Genesis, I think describes what's going on in this chapter very well. It's very short. He says, he says a festive mood turns sour. Okay, from celebration to conflict. Have you ever hosted a party before, but later found out that you invited the wrong guest. Just one guest. And my experience from helping other people, of course, uh, I know that sometimes that guest is also a family member. And so the whole party is going well until this one guest decides to make it all about him or her, and then the drama increases. Well, as we go through the story, very interestingly, that's what happens. Okay, and so I've got two points. Let's start with the party, right? The celebration, verses 1 through 8. Look with me at verse 1. It says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight, years, or eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Um, 
I think the author might just intend us all to pause after reading that. hundred years old. Verse 6, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears me will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I had borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Okay, this is a huge celebration they're going to partake in here. Well, the first part of this chapter portrays the birth of Isaac in a very straightforward manner. There are not a lot of details, just the facts. But what Moses does give us, he moves it this way in verses 1 through 8. He, he moves from what God did to how Sarah responds. And then he talks about Abram and what he did. And then he again moves to Sarah and what she says. So it goes, God to Sarah, Abraham to Sarah. That's how this text unfolds. Of course, we know uh, in a text about the impossible birth of Isaac that everything starts with God. In verse 1, there are two verbs to describe what God does. He visited Sarah and he did to her as he had promised. Now, the verb visited is one that's used often in the Hebrew Bible, the scriptures, to describe the acts of God. So later on in the book of Genesis, for instance, Joseph predicts that there will come a time when God will surely visit the people of Israel down in Egypt. And by that use of the verb visit, uh, he intends to say that the Lord is going to come and he's going to attend to the needs of the people and he's going to help them. He's going to deliver them from slavery in Egypt. That's what it means when he says the Lord visited them. He's going to help them. He's going to come and meet their needs. Later on in the book of Ruth, this same verb is used, visit, uh, to, uh, by, Naomi, by, by Naomi, who had heard that God had, had moved to meet the needs of the people of Judah during a famine. And the verb he uses is, God visited them. He, that is, he, he uh, intended to their particular needs. He provided food when there was none. But it's also true that this verb visited is used in Scripture of certain women that God visits who were before infertile but were able to conceive because of God coming and attending to their specific needs. And so that's what God does for Sarah here. He takes away any hindrance or impediment for her fertility as a 90-year-old woman. Then, in verse 2, Sarah conceives and bears a son. Amazing miracle of God. 90-year-old woman, 100-year-old father. She conceives and bears a son. Abraham uh, responds in verses, uh, uh, or in the following verses here. He names Isaac, and then he circumcised Isaac just as God had told him. And then finally, and I want to draw your attention to this a little bit more, in verses 6 and 7, Sarah responds by giving two speeches. They're short speeches. They're one sentence long or so, maybe two. In her first speech, Sarah says that God had given her much joy in this and then explains, or uses this little phrase that's, I think, very interesting in verse 6, that everyone who hears will laugh over me. And I want to talk about that little phrase for just a little bit. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. 
There are different ways that you could translate that little phrase, but I like how the ESV does it. I wouldn't change a thing. I really, you know, sometimes I don't like every, you know, English translation, but I really like this one. He who laughs, uh, or um, I'm sorry, just uh, messed it all up there. Uh, where was I again? Yeah, that's right. Okay, verse 6. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Okay, so I, I, I really like that. It, I don't think the point is that people will laugh at her or will laugh behind her back. I don't think that's what Sarah is talking about here. Okay, although maybe there were some people who would laugh at the thought of a 90-year-old woman uh, giving birth to a child. I, I don't know, but that's not her point here. Instead, no, they're going to laugh with her or for her. They're going to laugh over her, and the reason I like it is they're going to laugh over her in the sense that they will stand around her as she's holding her baby and will laugh over her. What a beautiful picture of the joy that this miracle baby brings. Joy and laughter to Sarah and everyone around her. Two of my children, who will remain anonymous uh, in accordance with the pact that I have signed with them, uh, two of my children uh, were born twins. <laughs> Surprise twins. I love to tell their story. We had no idea before their births that Carissa was expecting twins. And I know most of you have heard this story, so I'm not going to get into it. But because there were no clues before their birth, the story of a surprise twin has brought much joy, not only to Carissa, but to everyone who's heard the story. Everyone who knows her, even strangers on planes. When you tell the story, their mouth just drops. And they rejoice with us momentarily at God's provision of a surprise twin. That's what strikes Sarah here. Everyone will laugh with her about this miracle baby. Now in her second speech in verse 7, she questions who would possibly ever say to Abraham that he would have a child by Sarah. I mean, they're too old, right? She can't here imagine any person thinking that Sarah would nurse Abraham's children. Now, there actually was someone who said that to her. If you remember a few chapters ago, she just wasn't able to receive it or believe it at that time. But after such a miraculous birth, Moses explains in verse 8, he, he gives a final note that is quite important. Moses explains that Abraham and Sarah throw Ishmael a party. And this party celebrates the time when Isaac was weaned, when he no longer would be nursing. Now, in ancient times, this was a very important moment, more important than perhaps any birthday celebration. This occurred when a, a baby would be between the ages of two and three, maybe even up to three, when parents and friends would get together and celebrate a child's rite of passage from the dangerous stage of infancy into childhood. Things you have to remember, it's a modern reader looking back at this ancient text, is the rate of infant mortality. The rate of infant mortality back in these days was extremely high. 
And so what Moses portrays here is a special celebration, a weaning party, to celebrate Isaac's health and growth as a significant achievement for this young boy. This is a super party. It's a celebration, and uh, I'm sure the parents enjoyed the day. Now, everything seems to be going well, right? Party's going on. People are enjoying it. The promise is fulfilled. The party's fun. But then comes the crisis. I want you to look in your Bibles, and this is the second point we'll make today, and we'll look at verses 9 through 21 to see the nature of the crisis. Verse 9. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman should not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son, but God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy, or, I'm sorry, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman, also because he is your offspring. Verse 14, so Abram rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about a distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy. Where he is, up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make of him a great nation. Verse 19, then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife from him from the land of Egypt. I want to just take a moment and walk through this part of the story from celebration to conflict. The conflict scene concerns a boy, a young lad, a likely a teenage boy. Ishmael, I believe at this point, if you're doing the math, I think Ishmael is somewhere between the ages of 16 and 18 in the story. This, is, uh, this weaning probably occurs at least three years after the birth of Isaac, or around three years after the birth of Isaac. So Ishmael is 16 to 18. And according to verse 9, he is the source of a crisis at the weaning party. But did you notice how the text describes what he did? What did he do that was so bad? Well, the Hebrew gives one word to describe it. He laughed. He was laughing. Okay. But one of the questions we have to consider here is, uh, what exactly is laughing in this context. Uh, how is that wrong? Right? Unfortunately, the Hebrew just gives that one word, laughing. And so this has long been a source of curiosity for interpreters of Scripture, trying to figure out what's the nature of the laughing. Now, I don't think that Ishmael is simply playing with Isaac. 
I don't think it's a positive thing here. I interpret it in some way as a negative. And having considered this one question, this one Hebrew word, all week, I would suggest that maybe two explanations are most likely. One of these two. I think laughing could be translated laughing like the ESV does here. And if that's the case, it may simply be that Ishmael is having too much fun at the party. One interesting note about the name of Isaac. Do you know what his name means? Isaac means he laughs or laughter. Sarah has already alluded to that in the text when she said that everyone will laugh with Sarah at the birth of Isaac. So people are at this party and they're to be laughing with Sarah about Isaac, but perhaps they're distracted by the laughter of Ishmael instead. In other words, the spotlight at this party is supposed to be on Isaac, not on Ishmael. We've all seen the guy who steals the spotlight at a party and makes it all about himself. And so it could be something like that. However, I think there's another way to take this that's even more sinister, and this is the way I would prefer. I think it could also be translated mocking or ridiculing. It might be that Ishmael mocks or ridicules little Isaac at his party. Perhaps Ishmael is driven by jealousy or is acting in immaturity. Maybe he mocks his, the elderly mother. We don't know who he would be mocking, but he's mocking, in my opinion. Now, the word laughing can be translated as ridicule or mocking in other texts. And uh, there are different places even in Genesis that I think you could pick up on this. Uh, you could write down these two texts. You could write down Genesis 19, verse 14, and Genesis 39, verse 14. Pretty easy, 19, 14, 39, 14. In Genesis 19 and verse 14, you remember uh, right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, verse 14 says, so Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be, and the ESV translates it, jesting. He seems to be mocking them. Making jokes, fooling around about this. That's the same word that's used of what Isaac does here, laughing, mocking. In Genesis 39 and verse 14, it's used uh, by Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife, when she falsely accuses Joseph of sexual abuse. False accusation here. Genesis 39, verse 14. says this, She, that's Potiphar's wife, called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. That's the word. To mock us or ridicule us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice, and as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until her master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me, to ridicule or mock us. And so I think that uh, the way I would take what Isaac is doing at the party is he's mocking or ridiculing someone, Isaac or Sarah or both. Regardless, Sarah realizes that there's something incompatible here between the two boys. I think her motherly instincts kind of kick in here. 
Perhaps she realizes that eventually there'll be a natural debate about the two boys and who is going to be the rightful heir. Or maybe that, that, that look and that mockery makes her fear for the life of her baby or her little son Isaac. Whichever it is, we, we must understand that Ishmael is not innocent in this situation. You say, well, how do you know that so certainly just as one word? Well, later on in your Bible... God is going to lead an apostle uh, to write about this moment. The apostle that he reads, uh, leads to write about this is the apostle Paul years later when he's writing the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 4, there's an extended allegory about Sarah and Hagar. And when Paul is commenting, I believe, on this exact situation right here, this moment at this weaning party, Paul describes it this way. He says, he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, and here's the word Paul uses, persecuted. He who was born according to the spirit, that's Isaac. Paul interprets Ishmael's laughing as a form of persecution. He persecuted Isaac. So in this passage, we have the exact moment of Ishmael's laughter being described by Paul's a form of persecution. Okay, so back in our text, uh, how does Sarah respond? She sees him laughing or mocking. What does she do? She makes demands in verse 10. She says, cast out this slave woman with her son. She will no longer identify them by name. You're not going to call Hagar by name or Ishmael by name. Cast out the slave woman and her son. In verse 10. This is a very harsh way for her to treat her. The verbs cast out, or the verb cast out, is the same one that, was, that, that, that happened to be used when Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. And later when Cain was driven away or cast out after he killed his brother Abel. So Sarah's reasoning here for such harsh treatment as she wants there to be no doubt about who the rightful heir of Abraham's fortune is. It's blessed. Well, to this whole thing, I think, has made Abraham quite upset. In verse 11, you can read about that. And so he goes before God, or God leans in to help him and to speak truth into the situation. You've got Sarah who's demanding for his other wife, Hagar, to be driven away. And to the shock of us as modern readers, what God does here is quite interesting. God sides with Sarah. God sides with Sarah in this text and says that Abraham should indeed send Hagar and Ishmael away. I think uh, for many of us, if we know the text, it doesn't stun us, but I think if, if us as modern readers read this with a fresh perspective, it, it, uh, it uh, startles us because we demand the protection and care of the weak and oppressed and the vulnerable. And at least upon first reading, it seems like Hagar and Ishmael are the weak, the vulnerable, and the oppressed. But I want to make a few statements about this and why God acts in such a way. And the point here would be to defend the character of our great God who always acts in righteous ways always does what's in accordance with his right and sovereign 
purposes. And so let me make two statements about this text to answer critics who would say it really seems that God is being unfair to Hagar and Sarah. I don't know if you've thought that at all in this text, but here are two ways I would answer that. First, I would suggest the way I see this passage, Hagar and Ishmael are at fault in this situation. I'm not saying Abraham and Sarah aren't. They've been at fault in just about every episode we've looked at, the whole book. But in this text, the way I interpret it, I I don't see Hagar and Ishmael as being innocent. First, um, there is what we don't hear from Hagar in this text. Hagar is a very silent partner in this text. She does not, we have no record of her congratulating Sarah or joining with her in her joy. Sarah does not say something like this. She does not say, I am so happy for you. I mean, it's been like, it's been over 25 years since God promised you this. And and now this has happened. No record of her saying anything like that. She doesn't say something like this. I know your son Isaac uh, is God's chosen son of blessing. I mean, I love my son Ishmael, but it's obvious what God has said and what he's done here. She doesn't do anything to disarm the situation. Neither does she object when she's driven away. Like a figure later on, a virtuous figure later on in the Bible objects when she's being driven away from God's people and God's land. And uh, on this one, I would encourage you to think with me about Ruth and what Ruth said to Naomi. Now, uh, in full transparency, I I listened to a sermon this week and uh, a great uh, um, Old Testament scholar and preacher, Jim Hamilton, was working through this text and he, he brought me to this passage and to think about Ruth and Naomi. You remember what happens in the book of Ruth early on? Naomi has two daughter-in-laws, and she says she can't provide for them and tries to send them away. Uh, and one of the daughter-in-laws go, but, but, but go away, but, but Ruth refuses. Well, in Ruth 1, verse 15, it says this, And Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. She's gone back to her people and her gods. Follow your sister-in-law, she says. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God is my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. In that later text, Ruth won't leave, and she absolutely refuses to worship the false gods. Of her homeland. Not Hagar. For Ruth, Yahweh will be her God. Not Hagar. She leaves she, and then later retrieves a wife for her son. In this text, we can read about it. She retrieves a wife for her son, not from among Abraham's clan or posterity, from one among a group of people who are devoted to the worship of Yahweh. But where does she go? goes back down to Egypt to, to her people to find a wife for Ishmael from the people who be worshiping false gods down in Egypt. And so one of the things I would say is I don't think Hagar is completely without fault in this text. But I would add to this it, it very clearly in the text. Ishmael is not without fault. He does mock and laugh at Isaac 
or Sarah here, one of them, he's laughing or mocking. And I think that this is in accordance with what God said about Ishmael earlier in the text. Do you remember this? Flip over to Genesis 16 for just a moment, just a page or two in your Bibles. Genesis chapter 16 and verse, uh, middle of verse 11. Actually, we can start at the verse 11. God's prophesying through the angel of the Lord what Ishmael's going to be like. Look at Genesis 16, 11. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to you, to your affliction. Verse 12. Ready for this? Mom, how would you like this to be said about your unborn child? He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone. And everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his what? Kinsmen. This laughing at the weaning party, I think, is consistent with what we know about Ishmael's wild donkey sort of behavior. And his commitment to have his hand against everyone, especially those who are his kinsmen, his family. So to answer this question, why? Why does God side with Sarah? Why does it appear that he's so harsh here? I, I would suggest first that Hagar and Ishmael are not at fault, or not without fault in this text. But I would add to that a, a second explanation, and, and I want to make some uh, applications from this as well. Secondly, let me also state that uh, God's so, in God's sovereign plan, he sometimes uses difficulties in our lives to bring about or to accomplish his sovereign and right will. And so when people object to what's going on in this passage, saying it's so unfair to Hagar and Ishmael, I, I would suggest what they need to do is they need to expand their view. They need to expand their view. They need to take their eyes off of this one little scene in Abraham's story and look around at the rest of Genesis and the scriptures to see if there are bigger things going on. Okay, and indeed, there are much bigger things going on. I will point out two of them to you. First, it's clear that Abraham gets into this whole predicament because of a sinful earlier choice. That's something you've got to remember in this text. Okay, that is, these are the types of issues one has when he practices polygamy tries to produce a son of the flesh instead of waiting upon God. Polygamy might have seemed appealing for some reason or another, but Scripture shows time and time again that it inevitably puts one in an impossible situation or impossible situations. There will be times when Abraham has to choose between one of his wives. He's going to honor one of them and not the other. You say, well, I get your point about polygamy, but none of us are considering polygamy here. And I would say, great. But let's keep in mind the degradation of our culture. Our own culture. I don't think it will be too long until our culture argues for the values of polygamy. Where some will likely identify themselves as having come out of the womb as polygamous or as polyamorous and I don't think that it'll be too long after that that, the, that some believers 
in the church will take advantage of the situation and argue in similar ways. Can you imagine that? A culture where we return to some of these terrible practices from ancient days. But secondly, I think there's another bigger thing going on, and I think it's also important to remember that one of Moses' purposes in this book is to show how God will bless humanity through the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman. That was his original promise to Eve. And throughout the book of Genesis and throughout Scripture, we find through her descendants that there will be a protected line of men and women who will eventually bring Christ. As one keeps reading Scripture, we learn that Abraham is a part of that line and that only one of his sons is. And the one sign, son that's going to be a part of this line is Isaac. Isaac. If something were to happen to Isaac, then the, the line of the Messiah would be broken. Perhaps Sarah here sees the look of a jealous older brother who's considering doing something to his little brother. This would not be the first time in the book of Genesis, by the way, that a jealous older brother took the life of his younger brother, Cain and Abel. So instead of God punishing the vulnerable in this text, which I even hate to say regarding the character of our God, instead of God punishing the vulnerable, he is working sovereignly according to his plan to bless the entire world through the future descendant that comes from Isaac. And men and women, we can trust God even when we can't figure out why bad things are happening to us too. In this situation, there was a family squabble. But the family squabble becomes the occasion by which the sovereign purposes and programs of God are forwarded. Perhaps God is doing something similar in your trials in your difficulties. And perhaps if God expanded our view, we too would see that God does not waste our difficulties and trials, but he accomplishes his purposes through them in our lives. My wife this week, and I'll close with this illustration, we'll pick up more next week. My, my wife has been reading a book book is uh, entitled Becoming Elizabeth Elliot, which I think would be uh, a good goal because she was so much like Christ. Uh, Chris was telling me about this biography. Of course, Elizabeth Elliot is the wife of Jim Elliot who died suddenly while trying to reach the Alka Indians on January 8th, 1956. I want to read to you a few portions of a section that describes what God taught Elizabeth in 1953, that year. Just about two years before she's going to lose her husband. Let me read you a portion of these. In it, in this year, 1953, God began to teach her truths that she would probe deeper and deeper over the ensuing decades. Multifaceted aspects of God's will that could not be charted categorized, listed, or listed in an index. God's sovereign will was a mystery, a wonder that had no end. It wove together strands of life and death, grace 
pain, joy, humility, and awe. During this year, 1953, Elizabeth experienced the first crushing death she'd ever experienced. A friend of hers who was helping her learn an uncharted language that Christians had never learned before for the sake of the gospel, a friend of hers was shot in the head. Then she suffered another excruciating loss in this year, 1953. She suffered the loss of a notebook. In this notebook, she had over a year's worth of work on a language that she was learning for the sake of missionary work and Bible translation. After those two losses in this year, the author continues, it was Elizabeth's lesson one in the graduate school of faith. Elizabeth says, my first experience of having to bow down before that which I could not possibly explain. It was a long time before I came to realize that it is in our acceptance of what is given that God gives himself. In these moments in preparatory, years before the loss of her son, she realized in this moment she had to bow down before one she could not even fully understand. And that as she did that in her trial, God would give himself to her. One other citation here. It says, for the rest of her life, Elizabeth remembered the sad losses of 1953. They would presage others. More terrible deaths for her. But she began to learn the mystery and the secret of her ancient faith. It was not about outcomes, inspiring results, personal fulfillment, or even coherent answers. It was about obedience to the one whose stone she carried. What a mature Christian perspective on the way the sovereignty of God works. Listen, I don't know if in your life you're in the time of celebration. If you are, rejoice. It's a moment of joy for you and laughter. Or if your moment of celebration has turned into a crisis or conflict. I don't know which you're in at this moment. Maybe both somehow. But I will say this. We can trust in the sovereign hand of God. He's good. We can't see everything he sees. It's much bigger than perhaps we'll ever realize in this world. But he will never waste your difficulty or your trial or your test. And he is using that. He's using that to produce his sovereign will. Won't you trust him? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, There are moments in our lives where each of us are like Elizabeth Elliot. Where we're given a choice. Whether we're going to bow down before that which we cannot possibly explain or understand completely. Lord, I would pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room and in the chapel. I would pray, Lord, that you would be near them where they are as I know you will be. I would pray, Lord, uh, whether they're in the time of celebration or in a crisis and conflict, that their impulse would be to bow in humble worship to you, 
to recognize and know that you have purposes that perhaps we'll never even know. Lord, as we think of the situation with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael, and we just look at this one little episode, it might seem off. But then as we back away and we look at your plan for redemptive history as unfolded in the scriptures, it helps us to see that you're working to save men and women. Lord, I would pray for anyone here who does not know Jesus as their Savior. I pray that they too would be willing to bow before the sovereign God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the preacher went a little long today, uh, so I'm going to ask you to stand up as I close us uh, here. We're going to have to do without that last song. Sorry, guys. I got carried away and didn't look at the clock. To my defense, there's no clock in the back anymore. I got rid of that a little while ago. Uh, I invite you to our Bible studies at 11 o'clock and uh, then also our um, Membership Matters class. If you'd like to join us for that, I encourage you to come and be a part of that. Um, as we close, uh, the final benediction verses I'd like to read to you are the closing of Romans 11. If there was ever a section of the Bible that's hard to understand, right? It's messed up a lot of Christians over the years in trying to comprehend. It is this section in Romans 9 through 11 about the sovereign purposes of God. But we're going to end by reading the exclamations that Paul gives regarding God at the end of those chapters. Romans eleven thirty three, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he should be repaid? Paul concludes, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You are dismissed.